We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you an old friend, Farah Pandith, who is the recent author of an amazing book called How We Win. It's looking at extremism and how we overcome this. And so welcome, Farah. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you, Heidi. I was about to talk more about your book, but you're the person that should talk about it. I'm not going to get into that. So Farah and I, just to give a little background of those of you, because of course, there'll probably be silly references. Farah and I actually went to middle school together. So we go way, 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 way back. And it's just such a joy. I love the fact that technology has reconnected us. And I was able to actually get you on my other show, Evolving Digital Self, not too long ago, right before your book launched. So can you tell us a little bit, or actually, before you talk about the book, can you give a little background about your work and sort of what brought you into working in this space with extremism? Well, sure. And I'm so happy to be talking to you again. You know, nobody sets upon a professional life that decides that they're going to work on hate and extremism, I don't think. I think things happen in weird ways in one's life. But I actually, in grad school, did in fact do my master's research on the insurgency in northern India, which allowed me to get firsthand interviews with militants. And that was the first exposure for me to extremist ideology. But I never, ever would have imagined that I would be spending almost two decades of my life working on extremism. And it really came to pass after 9-11, obviously, when our country was attacked, and I really felt a calling to serve. Uh, And so I went back into government. And my objective was to do whatever I needed to do to to help serve. And I didn't have an an agenda of what that might be, but I wanted to be helpful. And in the context of that, was able to sort of focus in on why young kids were finding the appeal of us versus them ideology appealing. Like, why would they ever think that that was okay? And what were the bad guys doing to make it palatable for them so that they were moving from being normal human beings, let's suppose, into an opportunity for them to then feel compassion for those narratives. And then from that, be lured in and get radicalized. And obviously, from the US point of view and any other country, We are fighting terrorists. We have been fighting terrorists for decades. It's not just Al-Qaeda. We know how to do that. But when you have a gigantic terrorist network that is working 24-7 to lure in kids to build their armies, you've got to do more than just the, the kinetic or the hard power component. You've got to work on stopping that appeal. And so that's what I did in the Bush administration and also in the Obama administration. And in the last role that I was in, as special representative to Muslim communities, I was engaging with Muslim kids all over the world in nearly 100 countries. And so for me, that path to engagement and listening to how kids were thinking about what was taking place led me to a very important conclusion, which is, you know, evidence in the book, and I talk about this, that the thing we have to be watching for these young kids is identity and belonging, how they think about themselves. This is not about how rich or poor they are, This isn't about how well-educated they are. This isn't just because they live in one part of the world or another. Universally, what we saw, certainly what I saw in the work that I did was Muslim millennials 
whether you were in Trinidad and Tobago or you were in Zanzibar or you were in Canada or you were in Kazakhstan, it was identity and belonging. And so that's my journey. That's what I did. That's how I got into this work. It was really important that I, for me, to think about building antibodies in the system so that hate couldn't thrive. And so my work is about building that kind of resilience. I think it's so beautiful. And I'm so thankful of the work that you do. I think it's incredible to listen to it from that perspective. And then also to see, I mean, we're living in a time where, you know, you're seeing this physically happen in the streets where, while this is being recorded, we're dealing with riots and people are rising up and saying, you know, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to know what our identity is. And it's not just here. I, I, you know, here we were having riots in the U.S., And I was interviewing a fellow podcaster who happens to be a black guy in Wales. And he grew up in Wales and he was talking about the experience of being a person of color in the UK. And it was interesting because my reaction was, of course, you know, well, the slavery is the thing that everybody comes back to. And he said, well, you know, it was the Europeans who were enslaving them. So it was, it actually comes back to Europe. And, you know, these identity things, we tend to look very short sighted. We don't look at the history behind them. And I'm curious as to what your perspective is on how much of that is from a systemic perspective of what we encourage people to learn and identify with, and how much of that is from just sort of community-based or, or individual-based. I think you're asking a very important question, and, and it's multi-layered, actually, Heidi, because one of the things that, and certainly your friend in Wales will tell you is, Depending on the context of your history, if you are a country that was a colonizer, for example, you carry a burden that is different. For example, a country like the United States that was not a colonizer, but yet did some pretty horrible things as our country began. You know, what we did to the native nations that were here and tribes, how we talk about it in our country. This goes to your question of how you're learning. If you are not teaching, the young people in your nation and in the world to look at history in a complex way and be honest about what it is that happened. And if you whitewash genocides, if you turn the corner on things and don't really want to unpack them, if you don't actually come to the table, especially in the 21st century, when we have so many tools at our fingertips, literally with a swipe of your finger, you can see deep archaeology that debunks all of these things that we had been taught, you know, in school. And so what I think you're seeing is not just a one dimensional, it's because of this, that we feel that it is all of these things combined, Mm -hmm. how they were taught, what the symbols are in a community, how the language people use, the opportunity for them to thrive, You think about identity and belonging in societies. I've been talking in the context of the last year or so about what I'm constructing in my brain is a societal sinkhole, social sinkholes, basically, that have happened to our communities. And everything looks fine on the surface. And you put your foot down and guess what? There's a sinkhole underneath. And to see that in such real time today is heartbreaking, but it's not surprising. And I think what I look at in terms of a response now globally is how do we teach history? How do we value history? How do we value honesty about things? I understand that people can have different opinions on why an empire collapsed and what, you know, I get that academic exercise. However, 
you cannot teach American children that Columbus discovered America in the 21st century. You just can't do that. And yet we do. You cannot have statues that state one thing when in fact there's a much deeper, you know, thing behind it. We have to be nuanced in how we talk about who we are, what our history was. And more than anything, Heidi, I think, and this goes back to the point you're making, more than anything, it is people, every human wants to feel valued. Every human wants to feel dignity. And we cannot set ourselves up in society where some people get that dignity and some people do not. And that we, even though we say it's not true, that we have a hierarchy of who's important depending on how much melatonin is in their skin. So I think what you're seeing on the streets of America is very deep and very painful for our country, but it is an expression of many, many years, obviously, of not dealing with things that have been bubbling up. And I fear that unless we get honest with ourselves about the fact that there is repair work that needs to be done, you know, you're not going to see the kind of change that we need. And this is actually connected to the issues around hate and extremism that I've been working on because... I want to just tell you that the bad guys, whether they're neo-Nazis or ISIS, are preying upon those social sinkholes to make their cases. Absolutely. What you fed beautifully into the next question, because my concern, I guess, is the where we're sitting right now, you have, there's, there's this incredible energy, these sinkholes, this incredible energy, and you have youth that are very malleable, that are kind of, you know, they're almost enticed towards these sinkholes. And, and how do we support the community so, and support these kids to make sure that they don't fall into those and that they don't fall victim to or yeah, just get sucked into the appeal, whatever that appeal is, of those sinkholes and those neo-Nazis or whatever it is, because the extremism is, it's exciting, I guess, to some extent for some of them. And, and kids are passionate. They want to express their passion in some way, and they don't necessarily have the filter yet. So what is it that we can do, both as parents and as adults, and as just part of the community, to avoid that or to, to make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, the first thing is to identify the fact that there's a problem, obviously. And secondly, to understand that the ecosystems in which a young person grows up are not just what you experience in the classroom or around your dining room table. It's all the touch points that a young person experiences in their life. And so they're seeing the signals to make them believe a particular thing, to believe that somebody who happens to be black thinks one way or another, or, you know, these reaffirmations of these stereotypes that come out in ways that you may not recognize. Marketing people understand because they sell us things every single day. How many times you need to see something in order to start believing that those pair of sneakers or that color shirt or whatever is the thing you want to have. So we have not applied what we know about social science and psychology and the human mind, specifically the adolescent and child mind to the problem of fighting hate. And I think one of the things that we have to do is to combine our efforts so that there is a 24-7 machine all day, every day, that is pumping out the kinds of touch points that kids need to see that are counter narratives to the narratives of the bad guys, and that parents need to understand how the bad guys operate and lure their children in. So, for example, you know, look at what's happening in the United States around neo-Nazis. I mean, it is a extremist 
challenge that is frightening. It is growing. Hate is rising. These groups are using the platforms of technology, as you would imagine, obviously, to lure in kids. Parents have no idea the way the bad guys are doing this. So they're letting their kid, like, for example, get on TikTok and watch whatever they want to watch. But they don't recognize the fact that the bad guys are on that platform, too. And their job is to get more recruits. So they're going to use that platform to do things Now, parents are aware of child predators they are aware of sexual predators. They have a consciousness around that. There's no consciousness around those that are trying to lure in kids towards their hate armies. And so I think when you're talking about what can parents do, the first thing is to understand what's actually happening and how many very scary things are happening on platforms like TikTok, like Facebook, you know, where they're, well, kids aren't on Facebook, but they're on TikTok and and other, you know, social media platforms. So I'm not, you know, I'm looking at this problem that we have, Heidi, and I'm not saying to myself, boy, this is such a big problem, we can never fix it. I'm looking at 20 years after 9-11 almost going, we've learned so much and there's stuff we can be doing right now. Solutions are available, they're affordable, but there hasn't been the leadership and the focus both at a state level and a national level to actually make a difference on fighting hate. I think we've been lazy. For sure. And and I mean, as we talked about a little bit in the green room, and I'm, and those of you who have been listening to the show for a little while have heard me use this expression before, but I really do feel like this pandemic has been an opportunity for us to really be like in a chrysalis where the system was broken and we were sort of this ugly caterpillar that, you know, that was actually poisonous. And we've gone into a chrysalis and this is our opportunity to break everything down, completely redesign it and come out with something beautiful. And that process is not easy. That process probably hurts a lot when you're breaking everything apart. And yet, if we have the right people that are in leadership and we ha- we let people actually be, you know, let that beauty part come out and also do it very consciously, be very aware. And I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about this Black Lives Matter piece is that it's making us as white people say, wow, I am fortunate. I recognize my own biases, which before, yeah, I recognize them, but did I actually speak it and acknowledge it and say, look, I recognize that I am so fortunate because if I get pulled over, I'm not risking my life. You would think like you shouldn't have to say that, but we do have to say that. We do have to recognize that it is that broken and we have to speak these things and not just think them for them to actually be fixed. And I think that this is really an opportunity rather than, I think we'll all be fine in the end, but it's going to hurt for a while is really what it comes down to it, at least in the way that I'm thinking. I think we're in for a long ride where it's going to hurt. But I think that if we really focus on fixing rather than just complaining about what's broken, we can come out with something amazing. And, And I think your work is really doing some incredible efforts in that way. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've done? Because you, you have some sort of tools, I guess, is the best way to describe it, that we can use to help heal, I guess, is the best word that I can think of. Yeah. Well, um, so one of the things I, I would I would say, Heidi, is as you're describing this moment we're in, which is sort of, you know, the, this horror of COVID and the helplessness people feel because we don't have the vaccines yet, we don't know quite what's going to happen in the winter when it comes back. I mean, like there are so many unknowns and there's a lot of fear. 
And the implications for society have obviously dramatically changed because of COVID and, and job loss. And so, you know, you have fear, you now have monetary fear, you now have, I mean, environmental fear. I mean, like we could go through all of these things that are happening in real time simultaneously. It is a transformational moment mm -hmm. for us, not just to, to say, look, there's a broken bridge and can we get it to run again or can I mean, sorry, fix it again so the cars can run on it but rather to say, okay, the bridge is broken, but if we were going to build a new bridge, is that the same bridge we built? And actually we might not. And there are different materials we could use. And I'd love for people in societies to take this moment of horror and to take it and really work together collectively to think, how can we reboot things in a way that will fix the problems we knew that were going to come? And how can we repair things so that we don't see that weakness. There will always be problems in this world. It's not like you're going to take a magic wand and everything's going to be fine. But this connects to my issue of hate. You know, everybody looked the other way after 9-11 with regard to the ideology, because the thing that they wanted to see was that we were going after the bad guys. Go kill Osama bin Laden, get him off the planet, and everything will be fine. Yeah, give um, it a face. It turns, yeah. Mm -hmm. Turns out that military action is super important. Yes, I'm not advocating that there is no role for use of force in certain circumstances. However, it costs nothing life-wise to work on soft power. It costs nothing to be creative and inspirational in the kinds of things that you're doing at the grassroots. And that's where the answer lies on this. The bad guys cannot have armies if they don't have recruits. And so my thing here is, let us go all in, let us put everything we have in trying to make sure that we're protecting youth, and protecting them youth from hate from the us versus them ideology, I would love to be able to tell you, Heidi, that let's have a universal effort so that the 75 and 85 year old person doesn't hate again. That would be great. That's not where I'm focused. I'm <laughs> focused on millennials and Generation Z. What can we be doing? Because the numbers are so big. And they're obviously digital natives, and there's far more so you ask the important question. So what do you do? One is to explain to society in general, you know, how the bad guys recruit and what we need to do. So on the online and offline platforms, we've got to understand the systems that they deploy in order to get a hold of people. So that's an obvious. The things that actually work for a young person is not a one size fits all. So it's not if they only had songs that sang of peace, you know, everything would be great. Or if they only had a basketball player that said, be nice, everybody would be nice. It's a multi-sectoral, you know, landslide of counter narratives that are coming at these kids in ways. So for some kid, a hip hop artist is going to make a difference to them in terms of, of doing something. For another kid, it's going to be a very deep analytical argument that's going to make a difference. It's a bunch of different things, but it has to be delivered by credible, peer-friendly uh, spokespeople. So when we look at what that might mean, it's not like, let me take you back to 9-11, to you know, and so we were talking about Al-Qaeda, and we were talking about the fact that, in fact, they were going after Muslims to build their armies. And so what many countries thought is that, boy, if we just got the guy with the longest beard and the highest hat who was super Muslim to tell all these young kids that violence in the name of Islam wasn't allowed, they wouldn't join this group, which is absurd. Because a 16-year-old kid is not listening to what an imam says. They're listening to what their friends say. So if you think about that, 
who are the most credible voices for young people. So we've got to blast the marketplace with those credible voices, whether they're voices that we've ever heard of before or not, we've got to find out. So that's where cultural listening comes in. That's where we, we get really nuanced about the form and the shape of things. And then the final thing I'll just say is across the board, what we find on the research side, and this is true for neo-Nazis, this is true for ISIS-like organizations. The most credible voices are former extremists. They are people who used to walk the walk and don't walk it anymore mm. because they have something to say that no one else can say. Hey, I went to Syria. I experienced the hell of ISIS. I realized how ridiculous they were. I've come back. I wanted to tell you, don't fall for it. Or it's the former skinhead who says, hi, I was part of that movement for a very long time. Let me tell you why you don't want to join it. So what I see as an answer here, it's a long way of me saying, let's figure out at a nuanced community level who the credible voices are and scale them. I think that's a really powerful thing that you're saying there. and it's But it's also bringing up to me, because a lot of our audience are as global nomads, they're expats. The last conversation I had, we were, we were talking about raising third culture kids and how some of them feel like outsiders. A lot of them feel like outsiders, even in their own community. And so there you're sort of fighting with this identity piece. And I remember even during the Gulf War, they found that there were, you know, these Americans and, you know, kids from other cultures that had been living abroad that said, hey, I want to go fight with you guys. And they were going and fighting with the extremists and fighting with Al-Qaeda. And so obviously there's something that is drawing them in because they feel like they're outsiders. They don't have something to identify with. And yet here they can grasp onto something. I'm not sure if there's even a question in that, but I guess, do you, have you seen anything there that maybe that we can help, particularly when we're raising third culture kids, help them identify with not necessarily what is good, but sort of to be able to discern between this is an interesting movement, you know, we want you to take part in it and it's good and can have an impact on the world. And this is something that's dangerous and, and extremist. Well, so one of the things that's important in what you're saying is, you know, what do we mean by us and them? And what is identity and belonging and all of this navigation of culture, you know, to be in a household or to grow up in diff with different cultures and different hats on your head, like what's good, what's bad, which part of that speaks to me, what doesn't, because the bad guys are going to prey upon the pieces that are the weakest in how you think about things. Or if you feel like you don't belong and you really do need to belong, this aspect of your identity becomes you know, turbocharged so that you take that element and you go in a particular way. And they don't often have, you, you can look at, you know, 2014, 2015, when these kids were running off to Syria to join ISIS, you know, they were buying these, you know, Islam for dummy books, they were buying, you know, they, they kind of had a Hollywood version of what they thought a Muslim was supposed to be. So they're dressing a particular way, they're trying to do whatever they need to do to fit in. And all you can think about, obviously, is the same manifestation of that in a nonviolent context where a gang, well, that's a violent context, but let's say, <laughs> you know, a, a, a group, any group, like you're, you're going to wear that shirt because everybody else is wearing that shirt or those sneakers or that baseball hat or you want to do what you think is the right thing to do. The club, <laughs> right. That's a good way of putting it. So I think for a parent or anyone else who is who's trying to help those kids understand what's good and bad is to explore what is interesting for those children to be able to say, you know, I'm really interested in this aspect of my heritage. So 
that's one piece. But Heidi, the other part is as societies, we've got to make it okay and normal that people can have many different identities. Mm -hmm. And that when you say that you're an American, it doesn't mean one particular thing. And I know there's a lovely story about the melting pot and we're all different things. But frankly, the way in which we have decided what America is, is very particular. And Mm -hmm. so it's very odd to have a name like Barack Obama and to be considered (laughs) to be American, you know, like, what is that? Is he a real American? I mean, you heard that you heard that, you know, mm-hmm. when, the, when, when he was running for president and when he was president, he's not real because you can't have that kind of name. And I think we've got to get together as a country. And this is true for other parts of the world. It's not abnormal to see that framing where I will remember, for example, let me just tell you, I remember in 2007 when I was working at the State Department and we were, so this is the Bush administration, and we were engaging with European Muslims and we wanted to hear from them about what was taking place in their communities because we knew that Al-Qaeda and violent ideologies were preying upon them. And so the only way you can find something out is to listen. You're not gonna go in and tell people how they need to. So I remember I was in Norway and I was having a conversation with a, a young man who said to me, what do you expect me to do? He said, I was born in this country. My first language is Norwegian. But Norwegians are not supposed to have brown skin and brown eyes and brown hair. What do you expect me to do? Mm. And it was a very simple way of saying the obvious, but it is that reframing for those kids that is, it's actually okay to be Norwegian and to be, a, a, he was of Pakistani descent mm-hmm. and he was born in that country and he will die in that country. You know, that's what he was basically saying. Like, where do you expect me to go? Everybody says go home, but where is home? Home is home is here. You yeah. Know? Well, and I think we'll see more and more of that. And whether it's from global mobility or whether it's also from, you know, cross marriages and mixing, I mean, you see so much more of that blending. And, you know, even at the dinner table last night, I think my kids mentioned something about, you know, do you think that half the population will be, or more than half the population will be half black or black? in 10 years. And I was like, well, 10 years is a very short time. But absolutely, I think you're going to see more and more mixed marriages. And I think even in our generation, yours and mine, which we're ex, I think certainly in my family is the first generation that people married outside of New England. I mean, and yet, and I mean, I married a Swede, you know, he's a Northern European as well. But I have a cousin that married a guy from Senegal, another one that married someone from Guatemala. And my brother married someone from Oregon. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, there was, there, you know, even in our generation, that mix started to happen. And, and, and it was, but there was controversy. There was sort of like, oh, you're, you're not from here. But there were certain ones that it was okay that you're not from here. And there's others, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> um, so, you know, and now, I mean, if if my kids or if anybody, you know, the Generation Z, if they were to come home with someone from, I mean, who cares to me anywhere in the world, if they're a nice person and they treat my child well, then I'm happy that they're there. They've chosen them as their partner. It doesn't matter to me what color skin they have or where they come from. But granted, I'm a little bit weird. So um, <laughs> I guess I can't, That's I can't okay, really Abby. base it on me. It's all right. You're a nice weird. <laughs> Hopefully a nice weird. <laughs> but, but the point is, I think that shift has already begun. I don't think that I think it's just that there that friction point 
has, you know, already happened 30 years ago. It's just that it's a, it's now starting to become more ingrained in and, 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 and yet those tensions still are there. Yeah. And I'm curious, I hope you're okay if be asking about this because so growing up, we went to school together and you were an Indian Muslim growing up in New England, very white New England. I mean, how was that for you as a third culture kid coming into that environment? I mean, I remember in our class, the only other person who actually we've also had on the show, also a dear friend of ours, Soledad, who was Spanish. I think you guys were the only ones that weren't sort of old waspy families in our school. And how was that for you as sort of coming into that environment? You know, it's a, it's a great thing to think about, actually, looking back, because I didn't have, I was very lucky that I didn't have a bad experience. I mean, it could have gone the other way. Uh, we were very privileged, Heidi, um, you know, going to the kind of school we went to, which is just for your listeners, was a a private school outside of Boston and our classes were small and people knew each other and people knew parents. And I mean, it was, it was a very privileged place to grow up, no question about it. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I look back on this and I thought, I, I sometimes think how interesting it is because, you know, on one level, it is true. My values, hundred percent, my values in terms of the kind of person I am come from the way I was raised, obviously, from a mother who, I mean, I, so the other thing is I wasn't born in this country. I came to America when I was a baby, but, um, but still I was born in Surinagar in, in Northern Indian Kashmir. So I was raised with values that my mother had. Uh, and so family was very important. Our faith was very important. Aspects of behavior, meaning like your character, so empathy and compassion and kindness and dignity were very much embedded in the way in which we lived our lives. And so I say this to you because I never felt an us versus them when I was growing up. And I, I think it had partially to do with the way I was raised because my mother never, ever talked about anybody differently. Like, oh, those are Americans and we're not American. That was never, ever raised. My mother is a physician and she ran a hospital. And so she would always you know, I always saw around us the dignity with which my mother treated everyone, like regardless of their race or their religion. And obviously we had friends who were of every faith, whether they were Hindu or Jewish or, you know, Christian or whatever, you know, whatever it happened to be. So there was never a conversation in our household that, you know, we had to give preference to one particular faith or one particular race or heritage or anything like that. So that's one really important aspect that I think just really grounded me. The second is, I mean, I kind of had two lives in some ways because, I mean, you come to school and you're living exactly, you said, a really waspy life. I mean, that school was <laughs> extremely waspy. It, <laughs> it had a deep history, but you know what it gave me? It gave me a real sense of America in the sense of public service. What I learned about giving back and community at Milton was, and that's the school we went, was very, very important to me. So the stories that we would hear about graduates of the school and what they did for their community. I mean, I remember that from the time I was very, very young. I, I went to that school kindergarten through 12. So I was there for 13 years and it was very much a part of me. And I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, we were not going to the Cape on the weekends and we weren't going to Nantucket in the summer necessarily, but we were spending, so I, I kind of had a, a bridge, a very different kind of situation because I was doing all that, visiting friends, and it was all great. But I was also, in addition to that, going back to, to Kashmir every summer, 
visiting my grandfather and my cousins and aunties and uncles. And, and so I had very much in my brain where I came from, I mean, literally where I came from and who my relatives were. And also the only other thing I'd say, Heidi, about that is, you know, what we, for spirituality, I mean, I, I am an American Muslim and I grew up going to a mosque that was in Quincy, Massachusetts, which is a historic, obviously, a very historic part of our country. And so it's kind of, it's funny to me to think about that. But I say this to you because Sundays were, you know, where many of my classmates were going to church or, you know, there were evenings in the school week where people were going CCD class. I didn't obviously do any of that on Sundays, which is not the holy day for Muslims, but we, that's, you know, this is the American adaptation. I would go to Sunday school to learn the Quran and go for prayer and, and that. So I was doing that on Sundays. And so that was very traditional and very cultural. And then, you know, Monday I would go back to go back to school and, you know, wear my tree torns and, um, and whatever else we were, we were wearing at that age. And it was super preppy, wasn't it, back then? Oh, my was, gosh. Was very, yeah, the preppy handbook. Cool. Remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I digress. One thing that sort of stands out to me now, I think my kids, and, and maybe this was because of 9-11, I don't know, but my, my kids at that age knew much more about sort of the differences than I did, or maybe are more aware about it. Maybe they don't necessarily know about it, they are more aware of it. And that may have also been from when we were in Sweden, because some of their preschool teachers were Muslim, and they were wearing the hijab. But I think, you know, I don't think I was even aware of the fact that you were Muslim. When I when we were in school together, it just never occurred to me. Yeah, and it never occurred to me either to even make it an issue, because it wasn't an issue for anyone. Like, no, that when you ask that question, that's why I said we were so lucky because yeah. I can imagine a scenario where you're the outsider because you're not the religion of the majority of people or you have a different skin color, or you have whatever it is. I never, Heidi, I mean, it is extraordinary to think about today. I was never treated differently, yeah. ever. I was never, I mean, most classmates from our class, they have no idea what my, my religion is. They, they would never even, if, if somebody asked, you know, where is Farah from or... Well, what so is her religion? I would be shocked if they could tell you. Well, I want to challenge you on that because I do think that part of being an old wasp is that you don't talk about politics or religion. And so I wonder if that isn't just part of the culture that we were sort of raised to like, don't ask that question. That's not okay. That is actually a great point. It may be, it absolutely may be, but to the credit of the, the class, it made me feel like I had as great an opportunity to do anything. And by the way, I mean, you know, yes, again, I want to just be very clear how privileged we were. The teachers never treated me differently. I was never, you know, there was never an isolation thing. I'm definitely an extrovert. And so I am always, you know, with people and, you know, doing things. So I was never quiet and alone. And I mean, so all those things were in my favor. I I don't know. And I don't want to paint such a beautiful picture of everything because I'm sure there were people who did not have the, the lucky experience that I had, but I, I didn't. And, and Soledad, who you mentioned earlier, you know, we did talk about sort of going away to different countries on the summer and the summertime, but that was just sort of normal. Of course, she's yeah. going to go to Spain, you know, and of course, far is going to go to India. I mean, like what, that's what you would do. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really a tribute to your mother and her ability to really focus on sort of, you know, raising you as, you know, a kind 
and loving person and to not necessarily sort of say you're different, but to say, you know, we're all just people. And I think that's one of the beauties to sort of come full circle into where we are today is that one of the beautiful things that I think is coming out of the pandemic is that we really feel like we're all part of something bigger than ourselves. And and I think people are really recognizing that, you know, we're all in this together. There's no one place that is not touched by this. And that to me is something that I have wished for forever that, you yeah. know, and, and I'm sorry that it's taken a pandemic for it to happen. But I think that it's important for us to recognize that we're all just people. It's just humanity. And that is something that I think you do so beautifully in your job and in your work. And I think there there are a lot of people that, that really are, you know, championing that. And so we hope to have more of more of that is what I, I say. And my, <laughs> I my kids would say, Mo that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I could talk with you forever. But that, you know, that's the way it is. I'll just have to, have to create a third show so I can bring you on You're that going one to next have to time. A third show, so we continue continue the conversation. No, but it's it's been so much fun, and and it's actually brought back some memories of our middle school time together. And what we'll have to do is get Soledad and you and me on a something somehow and and talk. Fabulous! I look forward all, to it. What it all means. We'll meet in we France. So much, Heidi. <laughs> I love that. I'm there. I'm there. Yes. Well, it's been such a treat having you on the show today, Farah. Thank you so much. And we'll make sure we put a link to your book in the show notes so people can find you and find your work. Just thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm so glad that we've reconnected. It's been such a treat. And for you global nomads out there, thank you for sticking with us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like today's show, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes and check out some of the previous episodes like the one with Soledad. Quite a fun episode. If you really like today's show, always appreciate a rating and a review. And don't forget to let us know so we can give you a little love back. Thanks so much. And bye bye for now.